All right. Happy Friday, everyone. Uh, we are back with Learning Tech Talks again, where we are exploring the landscape. But today we're not exploring the landscape of learning technology. This is a very different episode. But anyway, we are demystifying something technical that I think everybody's going to get some benefit out of because it's digital transformation, which if you have not heard that term, I don't know where you have been the last... 10 years. But anyway, that's what we're talking about today. And today I am talking with Armis. He's the president of DevBridge. I'm not going to try and pronounce your last name because I know I will. So good. It. I will. So how do you pronounce it though? I have to ask. It's Odemus Adomavichus. Okay. Odemus. All right. I'm, I, I probably will even have to <laughs> guess on the first name. But anyway, good. so we're going to be digging into digital transformation. I'm really looking forward to it. He, you don't come from a learning and development background, which is exactly what I wanted for this conversation so that we could really articulate the differences in how we can think about this. But we're really going to unpack this one. But before we get into it, we got we got to warm up the audience. We got to get everybody involved, make this fun and participative. So everybody watching, you can play along in the comments as well. But let's start with you, Artemis. Where are you in the world today? And I know the answer to this, and it's not at home. So, <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm in Vail, Colorado. I we we family and I we escaped for uh, a, a mid-season ski trip uh, to to enjoy enjoy a little bit of powder. And and today is my last day. We're flying back later today to Chicago, and I haven't broken anything, so it's been a really good trip because I've done the other thing before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and and if I remember right, you're a snowboarder, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, you're bored. So, so am I, right? I, 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 years ago, I picked up snowboarding, and I feel like once you go snowboarding, you can't go back. The only thing is to the injury piece, I can just literally yeah. feel that piece where you catch your front edge and you bam on your chest oh, yeah. and you feel like you've just been snapped in half. Not, not fun. And the last time it I is, went, go for it. it. It is, you're absolutely right. It's very punishing, right? It's, I think it's very punishing in the beginning, especially if you're learning as an adult, which is what I did. I learned it in, in my early thirties. Um, that, yeah, I, I survived the learning, but there, there were a few broken wrists along the way. <laughs> I remember one, it wasn't that, and again, we won't tell too many stories, but it was not what the last time, but one of the last times I went, I was with a friend and he did that caught the front edge face planted. Mm -hmm. And when he rolled over, you could see his collarbone. Ooh out of his his jacket and i remember yeah anyway we won't we won't go into that all right anyway no. <laughs> i'm where i always am waukesha wisconsin it is a balmy negative two degrees this morning so it is great we got some snow last night um but anyway, let's shift gears into our sure. our icebreaker question we're out of the the that piece this one is a little bit relevant to the topic sometimes i just go out of left field and do something fun this one's a little bit uh closer to the topic but I'm really curious from your end, what was a transformation that you expected it to go one way and it just did not? It completely went in a very different direction. Yeah. Um, what comes to mind is, is, a, is an organization in Canada. It's actually a, a, a tier one bank in Canada uh, that was uh, and continues to be actually a, a, a long-term client of ours. Um, and, you know, when when organizations start thinking about a transformation, I don't even know if, if if you look back just to kind of look give it a little bit of of historical context. If you look back at how technology permeates everything that we do, 
organizations didn't start talking about, well, we need to transform. People started, initially people said, well, you know, let's, can we try agile? That was the, the first thing. Oh, all right, now we're doing agile. Well, should we integrate design into the way that we work? Okay, maybe we should integrate design. Should we become product centric, right? And so all of these different flavors of capabilities uh, start injecting themselves into day-to-day -day business. And long-term, if, if you look at what it is now, people now start using that nomenclature of digital transformation, which really means is- All we're, uh, Yeah, we're, we're effectively using technology to, to service our customers, to enable the business to, to digitize our processes and things like that. Now, so when we start working with our client, I mean, it's, for them, it's primarily around you know, agile enablement and being able to, to get things done faster and, okay. and, and get it out to market quicker. And we, we came in, um, we, we essentially were able to ship a mobile banking, a mobile banking experience, right? So mobile, okay. you know, being yep. able to, yeah. to which I, yeah, I remember that's, that's been a big thing for the banking industry was taking it from brick and mortar yep. to mobile. Yeah. And so we're, we're able to help these guys take an experience out to market in the Caribbean in the, for a subsidiary bank to take it to market in six months, which for them, it's unheard of. They, they typically, you know, their programs would last two to five years to get any type of initiative rolled out, which again is, uh, is an indication of, of an, an organization that is ne not necessarily using like nimble ways of addressing, uh, you know, market you mean needs. mean that's not or, agile? Two to five years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but we're able to do this one initiative and then the, the stakeholders at the bank go, well, okay, so you guys were really successful in this isolated instance. Let's try to adopt this to the wider bank. Uh, and we start going through this process. And and if you think about you know a digital transformation, there's usually a few kind of building blocks that you need to implement. So there's when we when we talk about uh, transformation, we we talk about the people, the process, and the tooling. Yep. So you need to to make sure that your people kind of uh, have the the right um, the, the right knowledge, the right skill set. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, you need you need to make sure you roll out the the appropriate process to to do what you want everything. to do, and then. Hundred um, percent. We start doing this, and we start doing this across multiple programs. And what we find out, and what what is kind of interesting, is that you know financial institutions, and especially tier one banks, and and I have not seen one yet, are incredibly hierarchical and unwilling to change those those fundamental structures that make the bank work. Right? It, it's actually in. In it's the not financial only banks, but I completely believe yeah, yeah, yeah. in tier one banks. Yep, yep. And so for them, actually, preservation of the status quo is, I'd say, genetically more um, appealing than change. Because change means that people's titles will change, roles will change. And because even like in, if you look at these larger institutions, right, a lot of the structure is actually built in a way where uh, retaining an employee for a 30-year period and actually having them develop in that same organization and then retire with the benefits of that organization are the the, funder, the underpinnings of why those organizations work. And the yep. moment you start saying that, you know what, you're, we're going to actually have to um, retrain or replace a significant portion of your staff because they're unwilling to change. You start, yeah, you're poking the bear. You start, oh yeah, bear, <laughs> big time. <laughs> yep, yep. And so, and there's another uh, downside to that, right? Or another, uh, I'd say, artifact that um, that surfaces in those types of organizations is that it's a it's a command and control management style. So it's it's senior down to the to the front lines. You tell what should happen, and then you make sure that your soldiers follow your direction. 
you look at the product world and you look at you know a digitally transformed organization it's the other way around it's actually the way they should work is bottom up it's it's independent empowered teams able to do what they need to do and actually take learnings from the the front lines of the business and then uh, you know create programs and products that change the organization bottom up um but again you need you need to change leadership you need to change the values in the organization the the reporting structure that i mean it's and so yeah so so institutional organizations usually really really struggle with that and yeah we, we still work with our client but they still i mean they they they, they use an amalgamation of of you know being product centric with all kinds of constraints that that the organization has put in place okay all right. Well, well, I, we I have no doubt we are going to dig more into that and what that looks like um, with this one. So I'll share mine briefly, and then we'll. I have my kind of first what I want to dive into with this. So this one will actually relate to the brief conversation we had before we went live a little bit. So yeah. early in my career, I was doing medical. I was helping implement medical software for healthcare, and the way we used to do it was very. It was very traditional. We'd send a trainer and they would be there and they would do all the training. They were just kind of on site. And I said, this just isn't effective. This isn't effective to have somebody there because once they leave, everything goes with them. Mm -hmm. So I initially just decided to flip the whole thing on its head and do everything digitally, right? We'll, we'll digitally mm -hmm. transform this. So I won't tell you the mistakes I made to, until I tell the story of what happened and then I think it'll start to play out. So the very first client that we took to this, day one go live, nobody's there. Nobody's there. I said, we don't mm -hmm. need anybody there. It was a mess. It was an absolute <sighs> hot mess. If you're not familiar with healthcare systems, when they're changing their whole software system, yeah. it's like lighting a house on fire with gasoline. I mean, it just it's chaos. So needless to say, I learned very quickly that there are certain moments, there were there were certain moments in there where even though that person there wasn't necessarily doing anything all the time, the comfort that it brought was addressing a non-performance necessarily based issue, but we had mm -hmm. to do that. Now, granted, we pivoted and evolved and structured it, and we actually did continue to move forward with almost a no on-site trainer type approach, but we did find those core moments where we said, this requires a person's physical presence to be able to do what we need to do. Now, again, we were doing it based on what the outcome was versus, oh, we're ju we just need to have someone there. Like we actually yeah. thought about what and why. So yeah. anyway, needless to say, digital transformation can be great. But again, you will, I've gotten kicked in the teeth more than once. Yeah. Okay. You know, the, the, with, with the healthcare systems too, and I've observed this as I go to, to see my primary care physician and you know, there's um, it, these are complex systems, right? These are complex systems because of the domain. Uh, they're they're complex because of the the I'd say the multitudinal way in which uh, uh, an interaction can happen with a patient. There's there's different, you know, depending on where you take it, right? You, it could be a sore throat, it could be a broken limb, it could be et cetera, et cetera. So so these systems, when you, when you talk about patient care, and you need to you need to diagnose, you need to track, you need to report and so on, their complexity uh, escalates almost geometrically. <laughs> what, what, what I haven't seen being done in, in the healthcare space and, and when I look at these systems is they, they're all designed from the perspective of the, the, 
the illness or the the treatment as opposed yeah. to from the perspective of the user that's going to have to be interacting with this this platform and as you were saying about you know training and and switching out a platform and and having people to become comfortable with it i have yet to see any of those platforms be welcoming from a perspective of a new doctor that's stepping into that experience right Yep. And I think that's it's a huge area of opportunity, and I don't think anyone's acting on it right now. Everyone's starting with, here's the end state of the complexity here, all of the different parameters we may need to track or log about a patient. And here's a, a, a screen with 50 bazillion fields for you to be able to you know fill out. No one's really looking, again, because a doctor, right? A doctor is, you know, they're not necessarily the customer, but for that piece of software, the doctor is the end user. Yes. And no one's building those systems from with a with a user centric approach where they would validate and test it with that doctor uh, to make that experience better and, and and smoother and so on. So, yeah, it certainly it certainly is an area of opportunity, especially. I mean, I think it's an area of opportunity in healthcare. I've seen it in plenty yeah. other industries as well. But again, I think that point really stands. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can give you or I can tell you a, a war story about this. Um, we we have a, a client. The client, what they do is they have a, a network of 10,000 physicians and nurses, and they provide staffing uh, and scheduling services. And they do some other stuff. They do actual patient care. They do um, facility management, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but essentially, they they work with you know hos- a hospital network all over the U.S. And then for their emergency rooms, they provide the scheduling and the staffing of, of physicians and nurses as things kind of shift rapidly. So, for example, if a doctor gets sick, they're able to provide an alternative yeah. doctor for that ER, right? And, uh, okay. To be able to yeah, on a moment, exactly. Um, so this this business, it, they 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 build this business essentially doing all of this work through Excel documents, um, you know, calling people. So really picking up a phone, saying, "Hey, Joe, are you available for tonight?" You know, uh, Mark got sick. We we need to swap him out because you, you can't have an ER uh, unstaffed because someone with a broken wrist may come in. Um, so. They do this all manually. Now, when we when we start working with them a good five, six years ago, they they don't even know where to get started. And this is this is the reason why I'm telling you this is it's it's an example of a, I would say, a successful transformation exercise in a transformation kind of um, life cycle. So they say, well, we don't really know what we need to do. We just know that we have a lot of manual processes. We have, you know, 10,000 constituents in our system that we need to make sure they, you know, they're staffed, they're they're working, then so on and so forth. And we have a lot of overhead in the way that we run these processes internally. So the first thing that, that we do, and, and a really good way for anyone looking to get into this or, to, or start doing this. How to, is start, to do, how to get started with a digital Because yep, yep. clearly they had, they had articulated, this is an issue. We just aren't quite we, sure what to do about it. We exactly. know it's this, we know it's messy, we know it's kind of a chaotic mess, but we're not sure where even to start. Yep. yep. And it's in those instances, right? It's um, you're exactly right. There's there's a there's a pressing business need, but the outcome is not necessarily identified. So you don't know where to invest this money, or you may have you know 15 different opportunities to invest money into different applications. So how do you figure out what you need to do? So asking so we, what you want, what does good look like, isn't necessarily. You might not be at a point where they can even really articulate that. Yeah, yet. yeah, yeah. Because again, you know, with any of these, with with any transformation going from from a, an analog process to a digitized process, you you've never been there before. So so as a business, you're really just trying to project into the future. So anyway, so 
a really good tool, uh, an approach to use in this is it's called a, a service design exercise. Okay. And and a service design exercise, what it does is, and actually, uh, while I'm talking, I'll even look for an example that I can show you uh, because I think it's going to be pretty pretty impactful. Uh, but what you do with um, a service design exercise is you actually map out all of the interactions for a particular workflow on a horizontal. So uh, here, let me show this to you right now. I'll share it in a second. Let me share my screen. There we go. Um, so if you if you look at at that little chart on the on the right bottom, um, you map out a workflow at the top uh, in that top row. So you say you know from a perspective of a for example from a perspective of a physician that is looking for a shift, here are all of the steps that typically happen for that physician to become allocated to a shift. But then in addition to that to that experience for your target persona or your target customer, on the on on those layers that are below, you actually map out all of the business processes for the front office, back office, uh, dependencies, systems that are currently being used to actually put this down into the deeper complexities of what it actually takes. Because you may yes. say, oh, this happens. Yep. Yes, but what is exactly actually making that happen? Exactly. So you're essentially, you're, you're not only you're looking at the user workflow on that blue top layer, but you're looking at all of the, like you said, I like the word, you're, all of those trickle down processes and, and triggers that happen in an organization to make that transaction work, right? But you do this not for a future state, you do this for current state of business, right? So this is the way that you, you run the true business. True visibility into what, that, that gives you true visibility into this. Now, yep. one of the follow-up questions I have on this, because it's an approach I've taken similarly when we've tried to do this. Because again, if you don't know what, really is going in, what you're doing today mm -hmm. it becomes extremely difficult to actually transform it. Or you risk, at least what I've yeah. seen, you end up transforming things and you break them because you didn't actually understand that, oh, yep. that's actually all the different things that went into it. But one of the things that I, I'm curious about is when you're doing this, sometimes in my experience, people don't always know. People don't necessarily know what goes into, they just, they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what happens. So I'm curious how you've worked with organizations where, you know, who are you including in those conversations? Because mm -hmm. Some people are just going through the motions. They're like, I don't know what happens. I just do this. Yeah. And on the other end, the widget comes out and they don't realize there's six layers of complexity behind the scenes that are happening for them to get that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And in these workshops, in any service design workshop that you run, you, we usually uh, make a, a determination of who needs to be present from three, three types of criteria. So one, one criteria is it needs to be an individual who's going to be paying for this. So if there's a, we need a sponsor, right? So if, yeah. if someone's, we need a sponsor because they're the ultimate authority on actually pulling the plug, for example, saying, no, we need to change this process because, and this is a cautionary tale, <laughs> People, in <laughs> people do not want change. Even if it's good for them, people don't want change. So, so you need to have some an authority that you can refer back to and say, listen, we know it's uncomfortable, but the future state is actually a better state. So we need to go there. So anyway, so there's a sponsor. Then we need people that are actively involved in doing, right? So that's that's effectively the... The blue line. Like you, people that yeah, are in the blue line. And, and even people who are maybe in, the, in those downstream processes. So yeah. if, if there's a... 
if you're doing this type of workshop and you're talking, thinking about a physician, you probably should have someone in that room who does onboarding for the physicians because they'll know the onboarding workflows. But anyway, so the people who are doing, and then you also want the people who are going to solve this problem in the room. So you need a cross-functional product team that is actually going to be solutioning for the future state. Yeah. So those are the roles. Now back to the example. So we run this exam, this this exercise, and we uh, we map out this whole manual process, right, of how these doctors get allocated to the shifts and so on. And uh, we say, listen, this is the blueprint. Now, looking at this, what is the the lowest hanging fruit to make it better, yep. right? W whatever better is. Maybe it's just you know automating some of these workflows so that maybe we can automatically onboard. Maybe we can automatically assign people to shifts and things like that. And very quickly, we distill out of just looking at that map that if we allow doctors to have a mobile application where they see open shifts and they can opt into the shift, that saves like 70% of the burden of texting, calling, yeah. confirming, you know, and not to mention you're in healthcare. So you're dealing with HIPAA, there's patient data, there's confidentiality. <laughs> you, like you don't want to do this over. Complexity of that, yeah, gets real messy real fast. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we identify a mobile app. And then to make the long story short, the mobile app gets rolled out you know, we, we look at the metrics of adoption for the mobile app and we use the metrics of adoption for that initial product to justify additional rounds of investment to, to introduce other automation workflows into that organization. Fast forward to now, and we can, we can dive in deeper if you want. Fast forward to now, they have five different tracks, five different products that digitize all of the experiences from automated scheduling, automated onboarding, patient care, um, then there's also the practice management uh, component. So, so they took all facets of that business and they rolled out products using analytics and metrics to justify the investment into those products to actually make that whole business run on software. And so all of the, all of the manual processes, the faxing, the emailing, the texting, that went and got encapsulated into, into software that was made for them. So I've got so to because it's... What's funny, I didn't say this back at the time, but the other thing that came to mind when you talked about not having the sponsor in the room is, and I've and I've had this blow up in my face before, right? You do all this amazing work, you think you've got the problem solved, mm -hmm. and then you go to the person who's the decision maker and they just go, no. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're like, what? So so I think and you know, you know why it's it's really uh, powerful to have them in. And it's not just to keep them informed. If one of the, the tips that I, I use for when we train our teams is I say, the moment that you have an individual in the room, they start feeling that like they're contributing to the solution. So even if the solution is politicized inside the organization, if the stakeholder feels like they've contributed to the end state that is being proposed, they're now vested. They're, they're vested emotionally. No inside ownership. The, there's ownership in that solution as it were. And if they're not into it, What's going to happen, and we've seen this happen as well, you're going to get to a phase, maybe they even allow you to build it, and you build some kind of product. And the moment that the sponsor sees that product, they go, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't have the, the bling, it's not, it's not snappy enough. And you're like, well, I love the gesture. Yeah, I love what are you talking about? And, and so, and, you know, because they didn't have that, that, yeah, that that's in, not in what I was thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you want people, you want people contributing because they buy in. So I have to ask this other piece because I am curious your thoughts on this one too is, you know, when you think about this big complex map of all these different processes and, and this is one of the things that I think I've found to be one of the bigger challenges. You talked about focusing in on the low hanging fruit. 
But what mm-hmm. I've seen sometimes, and if you don't navigate this, this can get out of hand real quick, is people can want to fix everything all at once. They can mm-hmm. say, oh, let's just let's just fix it all at the same time. And that's, I'm curious, your take personally, I've found reining it back in and saying, let's fix something that we know we can do first. And then if we can find more, we'll add to that. But how, how have you approached that? Because I, I mean, I've seen that happen in meetings more than I can count. Yep. Yeah. And I'll actually show you another really good. Yeah. Let me share this and I'll show you. So it's really about uh, prioritization, right? And, and actually, um, it's about understanding the, the, the pros and the cons in the different opportunities that you have in that transformation journey. And we're, we're more right now, you know, when we talk about transformation, we're talking about the, the, the resulting products that are, are uh, an artifact of a transformation. We're not necessarily talking about all of the underpinnings of what needs to happen to, yeah. for the transformation to happen, but we'll, go, we'll come back to that. Um, so let me share this. We're actually um, talking about the thing. We're talking about the thing, not not the process that precedes the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, You're using very technical terms right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I know, I know. So this is a good example of, you know, a business will typically have multiple opportunities. And this is an example from the, uh, the logistics space. So a logistics clients of ours identified that there's multiple things they can solve for. Uh, and the names are pretty self-explanatory, so you can see what they mean. Um, what the first thing that we typically do is we say, okay, can we assign um, a value to, to pursuing this opportunity and then the downside of not pursuing or the risk associated with not pursuing? And so we do, you know, the upside is we're going to reduce fraud uh, and we're going to improve utilization by 20%. The downside is, well, we need to invest into hardware because we can't do this, this augmented reality warehouse application with the devices that we currently have, right? So this is this is one kind of... Um, I'd say one yellow is good. That yellow is yeah. good. Yellow is good. Red's bad. Yeah. Okay. Very confusing because yellow's not right. Yellow's. I don't know. These are these are brand colors, so that's why it's <laughs> it's, it's it's brand coded. Then the way one say so, so say we identify four and we have those pros and cons identified. Then we say okay. Now for any given opportunity, do we have do we have technical readiness? Do we have feasibility? And do we have value and priority clearly articulated? So. As an example, you know, technical readiness could be, well, we're going to use big data and, and everyone's jumping on big data like it's the, the, the next big thing. But the problem is a lot of the times people haven't even started collecting data about their business and they already want to get the learnings from that data. And we're like, well, that's from a technical readiness perspective. Not you're there. not ready. Not yeah, you're just, we can start exactly. that process, but we can't exactly. execute exactly. against it yet. So you're yep. outside the, the scope of technical technically ready. Yep. Now, the, another thing that you should really do is that we. This is like the four quadrants chart, and you essentially look at complexity of implementation and value for business. And you take those four opportunities, as I showed you in the few slides ago, and then you map them across those quadrants. And you say, well, if you have things that are high business value and are piece of cake implementation, you obviously probably should prioritize those as the first things that you do. Then on on the flip side, you may also have risky and difficult implementation, but really high payback, right? So, so we say on the on the, the the kind of the top two quadrants, those are the opportunities you probably should look at and you probably should, you know, prioritize to implement. Prioritize the ones that you can probably hit 
relatively yep. quickly, then the follow-up would be, these are going to be more complex. Now, those could probably start or run in parallel a little bit. Yeah, that's, but, that's yeah. yeah. So okay. so that's, you know, so we, we would, looking at those four that we looked at before, we'd say, well, one of them we're going to kill, another one we're going to research because we don't have enough data to justify it. For the third one, we're going to do our proof of concept. And for the fourth one, we we have all of the, the evidence that we need to actually go ahead and build this product and, and make you know the, the experience better for everyone as a result. So that's yeah, that's that's to answer your question of well, how do you pick, you know, what do you do first, right? Yeah. Well, because again, it's a lot of times the process, even if and I have to imagine, because I've been in this seat before, where you may personally be in there as, as you're leading this transformation, you may already know where you need to take it, but you need to bring yep. people along for the ride. And there has to be some degree of a process so that instead of just shooting somebody's idea down because they think it's great and you say, well, let's let's actually walk this through the process. Let's figure out where it sits on on the complexity and the value that it brings so that instead of it feeling like we're just saying that's not that's just we're going to kill this one and people feel like it's personal it's it's yep. more of a process that you followed so i, I like yep. the structure that you've brought to it and i think again one of the things that i liked about digital transformation and why i said we should do this episode even though it's not learning is that this process is transferable Regardless, I mean, people yeah. learn can follow this same type of thing. If you're looking at, all right, we're 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 taking one of our programs from this to this, same same exact model, same exact approach mm -hmm. that we take to actually break it down and say, how do we actually approach this? Yeah, and this is so that I wanted to throw this on the screen uh, because I think it's a good it's a good um, model to reference. We we call this the product pyramid, and you know, the obviously the end state, right, or the how should I say this the the desirable outcome, right, is to be effective at creating product and being customer centric. So we want to be able to to jump in to, to be able to jump onto opportunities that are out there. We want the customer to be part of that conversation. We want to be fast and nimble uh, in in building an effective product. And, and this is purely related to digital transformation. But to do that, there there's there are like underpinning components that you need to build into your organization. And, and this is where I, I mentioned to you before that we need to go back to like the, the fundamentals, right? Before we jump into the actual building the product. Right. Well, you need to build these fundamentals in because without the fundamentals, you will have the challenges of the bank that I told you before. Because if 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 from a value perspective, if you your management believes that people need to be proactively managed and and ushered into outcomes as opposed to giving people the the flexibility and the freedom to make mistakes and learn and recover and then become self-sufficient in the way that they, they operate in a cross-functional product team, you will constrain your, your progress. You will not get to this product-centric state uh, if you don't have those underpinnings. And, um, and I, you know, I don't know which one you want to dive in more or, or if anything on here strikes your fancy. One And I have a question that, that came from an audience member that I'm going to bring in here. But what's funny is, Looking at that visual that you have there, I almost could see that being, you could almost use the iceberg analogy again. Yeah. That's, that's the one I think of. You see the product on the top, that's what's sticking out of the water that everybody sees and goes, oh, that's digital transformation. That's what we want to get to. And then the other 90% that's sitting underneath the water that if you don't, if you don't tackle that, that's really what can, you know, completely completely destroy or or make it a success yeah. depending on how you handle it. 
Absolutely. And, and a lot of the times, you know, people try to cut corners, right? And, and they, they think that, that some of those components are not necessary. Like, uh, you know, another big one, right? So I mentioned values. There's organizational structure. And, and the, the, the challenge with organizational structure is that most companies are, are siloed in the way that they have their departments, I'd say, no. built out, right? What? Yeah, right. Did I, um, I think you're, I've never seen that in my entire career. <laughs> it's never happened. Yeah, exactly. So, so when they, when the organization, when in general, through history, right, the way that business, let's say, evolved, IT became a capability at some point, I don't know, 60s, you know, 70s, more actively, right? Like investment in, in general, just having technology started all the way back. So IT was a new thing. And so you had business, you had your IT group, you had your marketing group, you had your customer support group. But organizationally, they're all distributed ownership. It's all adversarial. And there's minimal collaboration between those groups because the business owns the budget, but IT owns delivery. And so the business is going to hold IT hostage because if they don't get what they need for themselves, the business will get blamed, right? The stakeholders will blame yeah. the business. So, and, and this is an organizational structure problem, which actually continues to this day. Like the, the siloed approach is the, the de facto standard in most businesses, even today. And it, it pains me to say so, but that's, that's really the case. Um, so, and you know, what we know, right, from, from that pyramid that I showed you before is that you actually, if you want to really be customer-centric, product-centric, you should put product at the center. And so when you build your organizational structure, you should have your chief product officer owning the both the budget and the outcome so that it's not distributed ownership, it's, it's centralized ownership. And then you, from the CPO, you need to kind of build that organizational structure that, that actually deals with um, the research, the design, the implementation, and so on and so forth. And then, then, then you, you pull it all together. Build around your desired outcome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So a question that came through, and I and it takes us mm -hmm. back a little bit, but I think it's it's a worthwhile one. So it goes a little bit to what I was asking about, and it'll be interesting to get your thoughts on this. Is when you mm -hmm. have an organization that maybe you do that exercise, you have these you have these categories now, and how have you how have you helped them kind of identify? Yep. What is high risk or low risk? Is it is it have you run into situations where they maybe don't have the clarity they need to really make those decisions? Yeah, it, good question. So there's, you know, the the case study we talked about for for the healthcare client is is a good example of that. You know, when when you think about an opportunity, right? There's there's going to be the kind of the the risk is quantified with a few few um, criteria. So there's there's an investment risk. So you need to spend a certain amount of money to get it done. There's an adoption risk. So will this actually do what you anticipated to do? So there, so you're kind of looking at it from first execu execution and funding side, but then you're looking at it from a, will this do what it's supposed to do, right? We talk about digital transformation, but at the end of the day, is the product successful at, at the, at the, for the outcomes that we've designated or is it not? So, and when you're early in that life cycle, uh, as you were saying, and as the, the the individual who's asking the question was was asking, well, the business may not know. You're you're making an assumption. You're making a leap of faith that, well, yes, if we make that investment, we're hoping we're going to get that outcome, or maybe we're even underestimating the the effort uh, size and, and complexity. The 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 most effective ways to break down those barriers or get more clarity are few. 
Uh, one of them is rapid prototyping, uh, which which really is about um, taking that problem and building the the really lightweight prototype. The minimum viable service. So now, you know, that's uh, that's the next la layer. So the prototype, right? A prototype is not necessarily a viable product. It's just potentially it's a manifestation of a particular workflow that you're looking to validate. So as an example. So you're not even um, taking it to full viable. No. Product. It's just, no. let's just see if we can even conceptually prove this exactly. possibility. Because for example, like the, the, the individual who was asking the question, we're assuming that we can use uh, automated scheduling uh, and by looking at the availability of the doctors and the shifts that are available. Okay, so let's let's not worry about security, authentication, login. Let's just say, let's get a few records into the system of say 50 doctors and let's get a few data points of actual shifts that are typically keep popping up and let's validate if we can if we can actually conceive of an engine that does that that mapping automatically. We can pull if, something off that can actually accomplish that task. Yep, just that one isolated thing, right? And that could be and again. I'm I'm oversimplifying this, but that that could be a prototype that validates that one assumption that is core to the success of the product. Because if you can't so, pull that off, yeah, there's no point. Exactly. Now the there's um there's another really important element. To navigating that risk, and and that that next important element is funding models, and this is a really big issue for companies that are not transformed or 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 don't have their funding models worked out, is that program funding typically works, and you know they come in and they go, and I've seen this happen for organizations. We have five million dollars and one chance to do it right, and like. You know, like really? You, yeah, I know where that's gonna go. Like I, I you know, so <laughs> not, the, the the so so if you have these opportunities, the better way to do this, right, is to say, listen, we have five million dollars, right, in our in our pipeline. That's fine, but let's take two hundred fifty thousand dollars and let's assume that that two hundred fifty thousand dollars is just kindling. We're gonna throw it in there and see if this thing starts on fire it, or not. It might not. It may not, but then you still have your four million, whatever, how many now, you know, bad at math. But <laughs> but but that is a much better way to do funding because you you eliminate the risk and you kind of you sequence out the funding. And by the way, here I'll I'll show you one more thing. Um really, while you're pulling that up, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I I um something that I had started years ago was I called it my incubator, and it was a similar type thing where it's like rather than trying to bet the farm on one transformation. And to your point, I'm still chuckling at your leaning into the camp, <laughs> but yeah, right, it, this is it. This is our one shot. No, this doesn't work. I, we're doomed saying, let's have like an incubator where we're incrementally tossing things and seeing what happens. And you know what? Sometimes it works and sometimes yeah. it doesn't, but what we learn from that actually helps inform and drive us forward. Yeah. Dude, I've I've literally been in war rooms where you know the executive team established a war room and they go into the war room and it's all NDA. Like the, the thing is not even built yet, and it's all NDA. Like there's a separate locking key for the room because there's brilliant ideas on those walls. And they, they talk about this one hit chance of getting it right. So anyway, back to the the, the original concept, right? Like this is an example of uh, adoption. I'm going, to, I'm going to make that clip. I'm going to make that a clip because that was quite possibly there's tons of value in this conversation. But 
if, if people can take, I mean, you could take a lot from this, but honestly, that is such an important thing because that does happen. It happens. Yeah. We're laughing about it, but it happens where it's like, this is the one shot. We've watched too many Hollywood movies where it's like, yeah. this is it. If we don't do it, we've, we're out, we're done. And, and there's, there's so many negatives from that too, right? Because the moment you say that, your whole team goes, oh shit. Like if, if I make any decisions at all now, I'm doomed. No matter right. what decision Nobody's I make. Nobody's going to want to take risks. No. Nobody's going to no. want to try anything that's actually going to change anything that might work or might not because you just basically told them, this is it. If this fails, you're dead. Like yeah, that's exactly. it. Like, I don't want to be the one to make a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so it's, and, and, you know, back to our funding discussion, right. And, and kind of using, using metrics to justify funding. That's really the ideal state is you, we call it micro funding and you go micro funding until you validate a particular concept. And then this, this is actually real metrics that we pulled from that, that uh, medical client. And then we looked at metrics over time. So we looked at the, the metrics of adoption of a particular product over time. And we took this to the board and we said, listen, at week 27, we're seeing the following adoption uh, from a group of doctors that are in the platform. There's definitely positive trending. Will you justify additional investment of a million dollars to productize and build this further, right? So it's it's this incremental risk management using product analytics and product metrics that really leads to positive outcomes and, and leads to, again, in instances, as, as the question was posed, sometimes you want to kill your product and that's okay. But it, hopefully you're doing that in the early stages of that. In the um, early stages before you've done this. Yeah. You know, and yeah. what's funny about it on the learning side, I had an, I, I've got a good example of where we did this, where we, we followed the very similar model where one of the things was we wanted to showcase, could we quantifiably change behavior for the better using technical tools, right? Could, how, mm -hmm. you know, how could we do that? And, and we did a very similar approach where we had the prototype to even see, can, can we even do this? Once we prove that, we did a small kind of piece. Mm -hmm. let's, not, let's not do this enterprise. Now, granted, it didn't go quite according to plan because I think in the organization I was with at the time, once they saw like there was some hope, they just dumped it and said like, let's do the whole thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've that, been in that, that state. Personally, I'm curious your thoughts on that. But personally, whenever that's happened, I feel like it hasn't gone well because we didn't necessarily have the time to put to make sure we validated and figured out why. It was just like, oh, well, we had this one win. That doesn't mean we should go whole scale and now it's time to throw the $5 million on it because we still haven't learned enough to know yeah. the right way and all of that yet. Yeah, we we call it the, the Death Star mentality, right? So it... <laughs> It, it, yeah, it, because it's like, well, you know, this it looks like it's going to be cool. Let's 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 wait until it goes to production and really build out the capabilities, right? And and then you end up you end up baking in unforgivable flaws into your product, right. as in the case of the Death Star, <laughs> um, right? There's a cer certain tunnel that got baked into that design. Um, so. And, and that's happened actually, that's happened in another bank that we worked with where we, we built a, an automated loan underwriting and decisioning engine for them. And the moment they saw this thing work in a very limited capacity for like small business loans, they're like, we're putting everything in this thing, right? And then it yeah, went or, like, or it out. go for it, make yeah. this thing enterprise. Now, guess whether that thing went to market on time? Of course it mm -hmm. didn't, right? And it got like over-engineered, over-designed. Anyway, so yeah, you're 100% you're on point. When you're building these products and when you're building your strategy for either transformation or, and actually, really good point, 
these initial bets, you really want to make them small because you want to create demonstrated success in the market and then to build the momentum on top of them as opposed yeah. to show some kind of a prototype internally and then not release anything for the longest time. Because again, if it's in production, if it's in customers' hands, it is real. Then the, the CEO sees it, the business sees it. And actually what happens, internal teams, the moment that they see this being successful, they want to be part of those teams. They, they want to use that same tech. They want to use the new process. It goes back to the change management side, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. These other components that actually lead to successful digital transformation is you're actually building the momentum, the the, yeah. the sponsorship, the the activity that you need to actually have this be sustainable and carry through. Yeah, be, because again, you know, back to our discussion of of this is going to be uncomfortable. Uh, people don't want change. People are threatened by it. People's livelihoods are threatened by it because any change has uh, a possibility of of you not fitting into the new model, right? But the I don't moment that here anymore, yeah, yeah. But the moment that you demonstrate that, no, listen, you you can exist in this new alternative state in the future because look, there's other teams that did this. They're successful. They just launched a product in six months. They're they're being celebrated now. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the the people that are on the other side of the fence, they go, you know what? Maybe that that alternative future is actually not a bad state at all. It's not as bad as we thought. Well, and it actually yeah. Hilton had made that comment earlier in the show. Where, right, people, they don't want change without context or understanding this. And again, they want to be able to feel safe. And this is a good way to do that because you can mm -hmm. say, hey, see, this group did this. This is how it worked. All these yeah. fears, because when people don't know what they fill in the void, it's not usually good yeah. stuff. Yeah, of course. So this of course. allows you to then fill those gaps with viable information and real tangible things that showcase, mm -hmm. hey, see, this isn't as horrible as you thought, but I love your Death Star. See, I'm going to have all sorts of new. <laughs> but it's true. And I think it's a natural tendency. It's a natural tendency, even if you're on that side where you get some of those early quick wins. Yeah. It's like winning the slot machine. What's your natural tendency? You want to just pour more of your coins back into it, thinking like, mm -hmm. you got to win. Let's try and do it again. And you almost have to fight against that and say, but we haven't quite worked out all the kinks yet. That's great. We have a win. Let's continue building and iterating and growing, yeah, on that. Yeah. not just dive headlong. And, yeah. And it's even, you know, another aspect to, that I've seen actually play out is people will be reluctant to launch like actual production launch because they're afraid that it will be lacking something. And so they'll, they'll, they'll have this completionist mentality where they'll go, well, you know, we, we have this, this edge case with a, this other customer. And if we the new product that we launch, if it doesn't do what the customer needs, we're going to lose them. But but the reality of this is, right, if you can build, so talk about customer trust now for a second. If you can show your customers that you are able to launch a new product, uh, it has, the product has evidence of being better for the customer, but maybe it doesn't have all the features, but you also can demonstrate that you have the velocity to be able to release these features in a predictable manner and one thing that we recommend to all of our clients is make your product roadmap public because it, it creates a commitment both ways. It creates a commitment to your customer. And from a customer, it creates affinity and positive feelings because they see what's coming, right? They, they know that their promises are actually being met. So, so there's, there's, you know, when we talk about trust, there's, there's that other level of trust. And so lastly, 
people just need to jump off that cliff. The moment that that product has a certain set of features that can be launched into market, just launch it into market because there's so many things you don't know that you will learn from, from this build, yeah. measure, learn loop the moment the product is out in your customer's hands. It's, and I think this is right. So we talked a little bit about the, like how to do this and not get out over your skis or snowboard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's that side, but what you hit on there is the flip side of that, which is there's also this, and, and I see this happen a lot is perfection is the enemy of progress. And yep. there's this fear of, well, but we haven't accounted for everything or we haven't thought of every possible outcome and let's just wait, let's keep let's keep iterating and stewing on this. And where I've seen that just go horribly south is you miss your window of opportunities. I mean, yeah. I've seen that more yeah. than once where you have a striking opportunity and you say, if we could solve this problem now, this is going to accelerate the transformation because it actually is going to fix a problem that really is, on the top of everybody's priority list. Well, then you sit and stew on it for too long. Suddenly that falls off the back burner. You come out later and go, ta-da. And well, mm -hmm. it's not really that big anymore. And I think that's another risk. So how do you help strike that balance? Because there is the balance of, you don't want to go too fast that you end up pushing out something that's not mature enough and actually mm -hmm. has an adverse effect. You also don't want to wait too long and now you miss your window of opportunity or you end up, iterating on features that really yeah. would have yeah. been fine. So, so I think, you know, we, we should talk about one of the underpinnings of, of any, any product and customer centric organization. And the, that underpinning is the, the build measure learn loop, right? And it's, it's, it's really, it's the, the foundational um, uh, process in any agile methodology. But the idea is that you, you need to be able, as you're building, you need to be able to measure what you've built in, in some way or form, whether it's with a customer, internal audience, et cetera, et cetera. You need to learn from that process, and then you need to revise and pivot the way that you're actually building. And what, what is um, intrinsically true for any product strategy, any large program, is that you you know only so much of the overall journey that will have to happen. And any attempt to, to define the whole journey and lock in the whole journey is, is predestined to, to complete failure. So, so the, 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 the essence of Agile and the essence of the build, measure, learn loop is that you're saying, listen, I know what my perspective is. I want to go from here to here, sorry, to here. Um, and but I don't necessarily know the path. And the path could be going like this to get to that destination. But we have the processes and the tools. Sorry, my, my son's in the room. He's playing don't games. Worry about it. Yeah. My, my elmo came in, so you're yeah, fine. Yeah. But, but the, the path from the origin to the destination is going to be defined by a self-informed team that is going to use product analytics to govern where that, where that journey actually goes. What the pathway actually looks like. Yep, yep. And so that's why, you know, when, when you think about these things, when you think about decisioning, when you think about when is, what is the right time, when you should launch, you really, really need to, to rely on, on product analytics. And I'll show you. And then um, as, as you're pulling that up, I think what you're getting at, and I think this is a really important point with this, is it's important to know where you are and where you want to get to. But what you're getting at is trying to say, and what is that exact path going to be along the way? Is a fool's no, errand. It's, it's a, a fool's, fool's errand. errand. 
you're, you're, you're doomed to failure and actually trying to map all that out ahead of time. You just can't. And that again, goes back to that other point where it makes it, I personally have found it makes it actually harder for people to adapt because they're like, well, but this is what we said. This is what the path was supposed to look like. No, we're on a trajectory to get here and we're going to, we know that's the North star we're marching towards, but we're going to have to figure out what the pathway to get there looks like as we go. Yeah. And so I'll I'll give you an example, right? You see the slide on the screen probably, but there's, there's three, three categories of metrics uh, that we, we typically will use on a product. And the, the most important metric that should govern the way that you build and the way that you take things to market is the product goals. And so this is also known in the industry as the product charter or product objectives. Um, But you, for example, you may uh, make a claim that uh, we're going to automatically underwrite 80% of all small business loans that are going to come into the bank. And so your kind of your guiding principle, your North Star is that automation. And you may select, uh, for example, we're only going to look at really low risk loans as the first stage. My first metric that I'll use is for small business loans of under $100,000, we're going to be able to underwrite those, right? And that's a, that's a subset of the product metric. So that's central and that should be your guiding principle of how to take something to market. Then on the peripheries, you have your delivery metrics and you have your quality metrics. And those really govern, the delivery metrics govern your predictability in, in go to go to market. So um, knowing what our velocity is within the team, how predictable are we in terms of taking the next iteration of this underwriting product to market in a month, right? That that creates that, as I was mentioning, that that faith for the customer and the for the executive team. And then on the other side, you have your quality metrics, which is really the the hygiene of are you actually building software that is evergreen and sustainable long term? Are you are you you know are you proactively managing your your defect prevention strategy? Are you thinking about defect prevention and are you thinking about your performance metrics and things like that? So. If you take the system of metrics, really, it should it should be sufficient for you to, to to make those decisions that you were asking about. Go to market, wait a little bit, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, got it. Well, and I and I think this was this conversation has been exceptionally valuable because these things are all transferable. Because the reality is, these types of transformations, it's not necessarily just about it's not about technology product. It's not. It's no. It's, no. Uh, this approach and this framework can be applied to any major scale transfer you know, it, organizations it, trying to drive. It's funny. We, we talk in the team and, and uh, the, we say when we, we discuss with clients and they go, well, you know, you guys are, are really experts at, at the tech stuff. Like, listen, like it's complex, but don't get us wrong. The, the simplest part of this whole equation is the tech. Yep. The most complex thing is the people and the process and, and getting the culture and understanding and the values and, and people to, to step over their discomfort and embrace change. And so absolutely, the, the technology is the simplest you know, piece. And, and I, I agree with you that, you know, it, this, this kind of change management or in general, the, the adoption of the new things are it's applicable to any industry. It's not just uh, about getting a new product out the door. Well, and it goes back to in the, I think in one of the posts I made about our conversation coming up, this is why I think, this is why you see so many digital transformations fail across the board, is that there's this underlying assumption or this thing people are operating against that the tech 
is the transformation. And so if we find the right tech, if we build the right app, if we do this, that is going to make for a successful transformation. And to your point, that's again, not, it's not easy, but it's the easiest part of all this other stuff. And again, getting all those other pieces figured out. Yeah. If you don't get those other pieces figured out, you can have the perfect product. It's still not going to work. And well, it won't be the perfect product because it won't actually address all these other pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I'll show you guys one more thing because I think it's, you, you'll get a kick out of this. Um, we, Probably not as much as the boardroom $5 million or we're yeah. all going to die. This. I, I have other impersonations that I, I can do. <laughs> um, well, one thing, this is, I just wanted to show you because I, I think this is unique in the industry. And so we're, we're in, you know, we're obviously a technology consultancy, right? But um, one of the things that we do is we run complete transparency on all of the activities that we take inside of the team. So all of our contributors on the project, whether it's a product manager, a designer, an engineer, they track their time into, into our systems and then we visualize it to our clients. So this is a, we call it the Deverage Power Up app. And we show a lot of those, you remember the metric slide that I showed yep. you? Yep. We showed a lot of those, we show a lot of those metrics down to, again, down to activity of an individual to our clients, because what we are trying to do with this uh, back to change management is we're trying to show and reduce the level of threat that people feel from a new way of working, right? So complete transparency and complete like uh, open book running of, of product is the end state. We want our clients to adopt this. We even want them to show their data inside of this platform so that it becomes less threatening. So people are not afraid to fail. They're not afraid to, to actually show what they're doing, to make mistakes and, you know, and report the metrics of, of, of product. Um, but it's, yeah, you, you, you need to have that in there uh, for, for the adoption to work. Okay. Well, this has been this has been more than fun, way more than fun. I don't think I've laughed this much in an episode for quite a while. So, um, but again, also super informative. I think this was for anybody watching. It doesn't matter what your role is, or what your focus is, or what industry you're in. Every single thing we talked about here is perfectly transferable to whatever you're trying to say any sort of transformation you're trying to drive, any major change that you're trying to do. So I appreciate you taking the time, Artemis, especially given the fact you're you're out in Colorado finishing up your vacation. Um, this <laughs> a fantastic discussion. I think you've brought a lot of insight and value to how people can think about this. So thank you for the time. I, no, I thanks for having me. Trip back. Back to Chicago, it's it's pretty cold here, so you might you might want to extend your trip a little bit if possible. I know, I know, I know. It's it's funny, but we're we're in the mountains and it's like thirty degrees out here, right? And, and I looked at the weather in Chicago, I'm like, holy, yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much. Thanks everybody for watching. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you next week.